Chapter Eight of the Secret Battle by A. P. Herbert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Soon after that, we went down to the Somme. It was autumn then, and all that desolate area of stark brown earth was wet and heavy and stinking. Down the Ancre Valley there were still some leaves in Tepville Wood, and the tall trees along the river were green and beautiful in the thin October sun. But the center of battle was coming up to that valley. In a month the green was all gone, and there was nothing to see but the endless uniform landscape of tumbled earth and splintered trunks and only the big shells raising vain water-spouts in the wide pools of the Ancre gave any brightness to the tired eye. But you know about all this. Every Englishman has a picture of the Somme in his mind, and I will not try to enlarge it. We were glad, in a way, to go there, not in the expectation of liking it, but on the principle of Henry V's speech on the eve of St. Crispin we saw ourselves in hospitals or drawing-rooms or bars saying yes we were six months on the somme as indeed we were we were going to be in the swing but it was very vile after souchet it was real war again and many souchet reputations wilted there and died yet with all its horror and discomfort and fear that winter was more bearable than the Gallipoli summer. For at the worst there was a little respite, spasms of repose. You came back sometimes to billets, cold, bare, broken houses, but still houses, where you might make a brave blaze of a wood fire and huddle round it in a cheery circle with warm drinks and a song or two. And sometimes there were estaminets and kind French women, or you went far back to an old chateau perched over the village, and there was a bridge and a piano and guests at headquarters. Civilization was within reach, and sometimes you had a glimpse of it and made the most of it. But we had a bad time, as everyone did. After a stiff three weeks of holding a nasty bit of the line, much digging of assembly trenches and carrying in the mud, we took our part in a great battle. I shall not tell you about it. It is in the histories. But it was a black day for the battalion. We lost four hundred men and twenty officers, more than twice the total British casualties at Omdurman. Hewitt was killed and six other officers. The colonel and twelve more were wounded. Eustace showed superb courage with a hideous wound. Harry and myself survived. Now I had made a mistake about Harry. After that scouting episode at Suchet, I told myself that his nerve was gone, that for a little, anyhow, he would be no good in action. But soon after we got to the Somme, he had surprised me by doing a very good piece of work under fire. We were digging a new jumping-off line in no man's land, two hundred men at work at once. They were spotted, the Boches dropped some minis about, and there was the beginning of a slight stampede, 
You know the sort of thing. Mythical orders to retire came along. All Harry did was to get the men back and keep them together, and keep them digging. The officer's job, but he did very well, and to me, as I say, surprisingly well. The truth was, as I afterwards perceived, that only what I may call his scouting nerve was gone. It is a peculiar kind of super nerve, as I have tried to show, and losing it he had lost a very valuable quality, but that was all at present. Or I may put it another way. There is a theory held among soldiers, which I will call the theory of the favorite fear. Every civilian has his favorite fear, death by burning or by drowning, the fear of falling from a great height, or being mangled in a machine, something which it makes us shiver to think about. Among soldiers such special fears are even more acute, though less openly confessed, but in the evenings men will sometimes lie on the straw in the smoky barns and whisper the things of which they are most afraid. It is largely a matter of locality and circumstance. In Gallipoli, where the Turks' rapid musketry fire was almost incredibly intense and their snipers uncannily accurate, men would say that they hated bullets, but shell-fire left them unmoved. The same men traveled to France and found rifle-fire practically extinct but gunpower increasingly terrible, and rapidly reversed their opinions. More often, however, there has been some particular experience which, out of a multitude of shocks, has been able to make a lasting impression and leave behind it the favorite fear. One man remembers the death of a friend caught by the gas without his gas mask, and is possessed with the fear that he may one day forget his own and perish in the same agony. And such is the effect of conduct on these obsessions that this man will neglect the most ordinary precautions against other dangers, will be reckless under heavy shell-fire, but will not move an inch without his respirator. With others it is the fear of being left to die between the lines, caught on the wire and riddled by both sides, the fear of snipers, of five-nines, even of whiz-bangs. One man feels safe in the open, but in the strongest dugout has a horror that it may be blown in upon him. There is the fear of the empty trench, where, like a child on the dark staircase, another man is convinced that there are enemies lying behind the parapet ready to leap upon him and there is the horror of being killed on the way down from the line after a relief. But most to be pitied of all the men I have known was one who had served at Gallipoli in the early days. Few men, then, could have an orderly burial in a recognized ground, but often the stretcher-bearers buried them hastily where they could, in and about the lines. This man's fear was that one day a sniper would get him in the head, that unskilled companions would pronounce his death sentence, and that he would wake up, perhaps within a few yards of his own trench, and know that he was buried but not dead. That was how it was with Harry. The one thing he could not face at present 
was crawling lonely in the dark with the thought of that tornado of bullets in his head. Nothing else frightened him, now, more than it frightened the rest of us, though God knows that was enough. So that he did quite well in this battle in a sound, undistinguished way. He commanded a platoon for the occasion, and took them through the worst part of the show without exceptional losses and he got as far as any of the regiment got. He held out there for two days under very heavy shell-fire, with a mixed lot of men from several battalions, and a couple of strange officers. In the evening of the second day we were to be relieved, and being now in command I sent him down with a runner to brigade headquarters to fix up a few points about our position and the relief. There was a terrific barrage to pass, but both of them got through. When his business was done, he started back to rejoin the battalion. By that time it was about eleven o'clock at night, and the relief was just beginning. There was no reason why he should have come back at all. Indeed, the brigade major told him he had better not, had better wait there in the warm dugout and join us as we passed down. Now, when a man has been through a two-days battle of this kind, has had no sleep and hardly any food for two days, and finished up with a two-mile trudge over a stony wilderness of shell-holes through a vicious barrage of heavy shells, when after all this he finds himself worn and exhausted so that he can hardly stand, but safe and comfortable in a deep dugout where there are friendly lights and the soothing voices of calm men, and when he has the choice of staying there, the right side of the barrage, till it is time to go out to rest, or of going back through that same barrage, staggering into the same shell-holes with the immediate prospect of doing it all over again with men to look after as well as himself, well, the temptation is almost irresistible. But Harry did resist it. I can't tell you how. And he started back. The barrage was worse than ever, all down the valley road, and, apparently, when they came near the most dangerous part, Harry's runner was hit by a big splinter and blown twenty yards. There were no stretchers unoccupied for five miles and it was evident that the boy, he was only a kid, would die in a little time. He knew it himself, but he was very frightened in that hideous valley where the shells still fell, and he begged Harry not to leave him. And so we came upon them as we stumbled down, thanking our stars we were through the worst of it, Harry and the runner crouched together in a shell-hole, with the heart of the barrage blazing and roaring sixty yards off and stray shells all around. From a military, or indeed a common-sense point of view, it was a futile performance, the needless risk of a valuable officer's life. They do not give decorations for that kind of thing, but I was glad he had stayed with that young runner and I only tell you this to show you how wrong I was, and how much stuff he had in him still. And now Colonel Philpott comes into the story. 
I wish to God he had kept out of it altogether. He was one of a class of officer with which our division was specially afflicted, at least we believed so, if only for the credit of the British Army, for if they were typical of the old army, I do not know how we came out of 1914 with as much honor as we did. But I am happy to think they were not. We called them the old duds, and we believed that for some forgotten sin of ours, or because of a certain strong temporary spirit we had, they were dumped upon us by way of penalty. We had peculiarly few regular officers, and so perhaps were inclined to be extra-critical of these gentlemen. Anyhow, at one time they came in swarms, lazy, stupid, ignorant men, with many years of service, retired, reserve, or what not, but no discoverable distinction either in intellect or character or action. And when they had told us about Simla and all the injustices they had suffered in the matter of promotion or pay, they ousted some young and vigorous temporary fellow who at least knew something of fighting, if there were stray passages in the king's regulations which he did not know by heart and in about a week their commands were discontented and slack. In about two months they were evacuated sick, for they had no guts, most of them, and that was the finest moment of their careers, for them and for us. Lieutenant Colonel W. K. Philpott, substantive captain after God knows how many years, outdoubted them all, though to give him his due, he had more staying power than most of them. He took over the battalion when Colonel Roberts was wounded, and the contrast was painfully acute. I was his adjutant for twelve months in all, and an adjutant knows most things about his C.O. He was a short, stoutish fellow, with beady eyes and an unsuccessful mustache, slightly gray, like a stubble field at dawn. He had all the exaggerated respect for authority and his superiors of the old-school regular, with none of its sincerity. For while he said things about the brigadier which no colonel should say before a junior officer, he positively cringed when they met. And though he bullied defaulters and blustered about his independence before juniors, there was no superior military goose to whom he would have said the most different bow. He was lazy beyond words, physically and mentally, but to see him double out of the mess when a general visited the village was an education. It made one want to vomit. Then, of course, he believed very strongly in the book, not holy writ, but all that mass of small red publications which expound the whole art of being a soldier in a style calculated to invest with mystery the most obvious truths. "'It says it in the book,' was his greatest gambit, and a good one, too. Yet he betrayed the most astonishing ignorance of the book. Any second lieutenant could have turned him inside out in two minutes on field service regulations, and just where you expected him to be really efficient and knowledgeable, 
the conduct of trials and military law and so on, he made the most hideous elementary howlers. But ignorance is easily forgivable if a man will work, if a man will learn. But he would do neither. He left everything to somebody else, the second-in-command, the adjutant, the orderly room. He would not say what he wanted. He very seldom knew. And when in despair you made out his orders for him, he invariably disagreed. When he disagreed, he was as obstinate as a mule, without being so clever. When he did agree, it took half an hour to explain the simplest arrangement. If you asked him to sign some correspondence for the brigade, he was too lazy and told you to sign it yourself. And when you did that, he apologized to the brigade for the irregularities of his adjutant. A temporary fellow, you know. For he had an ill-concealed contempt for all temporaries, and that was perhaps one reason why we disliked him so much. He would not believe that a young officer, who had not spent twenty years drinking in mess-rooms, could have any military value whatever. Moreover, it annoyed him intensely, and here he had my sympathy, to see such men enjoying the same pay or rank as he had enjoyed during the almost apocryphal period of his captaincy. And having himself learned practically nothing during that long lotus time, it was inconceivable to him that any man, however vigorous or intelligent, could have learned anything in two years of war. Now let me repeat that I do not believe him to be typical of the old army. I know he was not, thank God. But this is a history of what happened to Harry, and Colonel Philpott was one of the things which happened, very forcibly. So I give him to you as we found him, and since he may be alive, I may say that his name is fictitious, though there are, unhappily, so many of him alive that I have no fears that he will recognize himself. He would not be the same man if he did. We went out for a fortnight's rest after that battle, and Harry had trouble with him almost at once. He had amused and irritated Harry from the first, the old duds always did, for his respect for authority was very civilian and youthful in character. He took a man for what he was, and if he decided he was good, stood by him loyally forever after. If he did not, he was severe, not to say intolerant, and regrettably lacking in that veneration for the old and incapable which is the soul of military discipline. Philpott's arrogance on the subject of temporaries annoyed him intensely. It annoyed us all and this I think it was that made him say a very unfortunate thing. He was up before the C.O. with some trifling request or other, I forget what, and somehow the question of his seniority and service came up. Incidentally, Harry remarked quite mildly, that he believed he was nearly due for promotion. Colonel Philpott gave as close an imitation of a lively man as I ever saw him achieve. He nearly had a fit. 
I forget all he said. He thundered for a long time, banging his fist on the king's regulations and knocking everything off the rickety table. But this was the climax. Promotion, by God, and how old are you, young man? And how much service have you seen? Let me tell you this, Master Penrose. When I was your age, I hadn't begun to think about promotion, and I did fifteen years as a captain. Fifteen solid years. And I don't wonder, said Harry. It was very unfortunate. When we went back to the line, Harry was detailed for many working parties, and some of them, particularly the first, were very nasty. The days of comfortable walking in communication trenches were over. We were in captured ground churned up by our own fire, and all communication with the front was over the open, over the shell holes. Harry was told off to take a ration party, carrying rations up to the battalion in the line, a hundred men. These were bad jobs to do. It meant three-quarters of a mile along an uphill road, heavily shelled. Then there was a mile over the shell-hole country, where there were no landmarks or duckboards or anything to guide you. For a single man in daylight, with a map, navigation was difficult enough in this uniform wilderness until you had been over it a time or two. To go over it for the first time, in the dark, with a hundred men carrying heavy loads, was the kind of thing that makes men transfer to the flying corps. Harry got past the road with the loss of three men only. There, at any rate, he went straight ahead, however slowly. But when he left the road, his real troubles began. It was pitch dark and drizzling, and the way was still uphill. With those unhappy carrying parties, where three-fourths of the men carried two heavy sacks of bread and tinned meat and other food, and the rest two petrol tins of water, or a jar of rum, or rifle oil, or whale oil, besides a rifle and a bandolier, and two respirators and a greatcoat, you must move with exquisite slowness, or you will lose your whole party in a hundred yards. And even when you are just putting one foot in front of another, moving so slowly that it maddens you, there are halts and hitches every few yards. A man misses his footing and slides down into a crater with his awful load. The hole is full of foul green water, and he must be hauled out quickly lest he drown. Halfway down the line a man halts to ease his load, or shift his rifle, or scratch his nose. When he goes on, he can see no one ahead of him, and the cry, Not in touch, comes sullenly up to the front. Or you cross the path of another party, burdened as yours. In the dark, or against the flaring skyline, they look like yours, bent murky shapes with bumps upon them, and some of your men trail off with the other party. And though you pity your men more than yourself, it is difficult sometimes to be gentle with them, 
difficult not to yield to the intense exasperation of it all, and curse foolishly. But Harry was good with his men, and they stumbled on, slipping, muttering, with a dull ache at the shoulders, and a dogged rage in their hearts. He was trying to steer by the compass, and he was aiming for a point given him on the map, the rendezvous for the party he was to meet. This point was the junction of three trenches, but as all trenches thereabouts had been so blotted out as to be almost indistinguishable from casual shell-holes, it was not so good a rendezvous as it had seemed to the brigade. However, Harry managed to find it, or believed that he had found it, for in that murk and blackness nothing was certain. If he had found it, the other party had not, for there was no one there. They might be late, they might be lost, they might be waiting elsewhere. So Harry sent out a scout or two and waited, while the men lay down in the muddy ruins of the trench and dozed unhappily. And while they waited, the Bosch, who had been flinging big shells about at random since dusk, took it into his head to plaster these old trenches with five nines. Harry ran, or floundered along the line, telling the men to lie close where they were. There was indeed nothing else to do, but it gave the men confidence, and none of them melted away. As he ran, a big one burst very near and knocked him flat, but he was untouched. It is marvelous how local the effect of H.E. can be. For about ten minutes they had a bad time, and then it ceased suddenly. And now was one of those crucial moments which distinguish a good officer from a bad, or even an ordinary officer. It was easy to say, here I am at the rendezvous. By this time Harry had got his bearings a little by the lights, and knew he was in the right spot. With these something rations. The men are done and a bit shaken. So am I. The other people haven't turned up. If they want their rations, they can damned well come here and get them. I've done my part, and I'm going home. But a real good officer, with a conscience and an imagination, would say, Yes, but I've been sent up here to get these rations to the men in the line. My men will have a rest tomorrow, and some sleep, and some good food. The men in the line now will still be in the line, with no sleep, and little rest. And if these rations are left here in the mud and not found before dawn, they'll have no food either. And whatever other people may do or not do, it's up to me to get these rations up there somehow, if we have to walk all night and carry them right up to the front line ourselves. And I'm not going home till I've done it. I don't know, but I think that that's the sort of thing Harry said to himself. And anyhow, after the row with Philpott, he was particularly anxious to make good. So he got his men out and told them about it all, and they floundered on. It was raining hard now, with a bitter wind when they passed the crest of the hill. 
Harry had a vague idea of the direction of the line so long as they were on the slope, but on the flat, when they had dodged round a few hundred shell holes, halting and going on and halting again, all sense of direction departed, and very soon they were hopelessly lost. The flares were no good, for the line curved, and there seemed to be lights all around, going up mistily through the rain in a wide circle. Once you were properly lost, the compass was useless, for you might be in the Bosch lines, you might be anywhere. At such moments a kind of mad, desperate self-pity, born of misery and weariness and rage, takes hold of the infantryman, and if he carries a load, he is truly ready to fall down and sleep where he is, or die. And in the wretched youth in charge, there is a sense of impotence and responsibility that makes his stomach sink within him. Some of the men began to growl a little, but Harry held on despairingly. And then, by God's grace, they ran into another party, an NCO and a few men. These were the party, or some of them, that should have met them at the rendezvous. They too had been lost and were now wandering back to the line. Well, Harry handed over the rations and turned home, well pleased with himself. He was too sick of the whole affair, and it was too dark and beastly to think of getting a receipt. It was a pity, for while he trudged home, the NCO, as we afterwards heard, was making a mess of the whole business. Whether he had not enough men, or perhaps lost them, or miscalculated the amount of rations, or what, is not clear. But half of all that precious food was found lying in the mud at noon the next day, when it was too late, and half the battalion in the line went very short. Then the colonel rang up Philpott and complained bitterly about the conduct of the officer in charge of our ration party. Philpott sent for Harry and accused him hotly of dumping the rations carelessly anywhere, of not finishing his job. Harry gave his account of the affair quite simply, without enlarging on the bad time he had had, though that was clear enough to a man with any knowledge but he could not show a receipt. Philpott was the kind of man who valued receipts more than righteousness. He refused to believe Harry's straightforward tale, cursed him for a lazy swine, and sent him to apologize to the colonel of the blanks. That officer did listen to Harry's story, believed it, and apologized to him. Harry was a little soothed, but from that day I know there was a great bitterness in his heart, for he had done a difficult job very well, and had come back justly proud of himself and his men. And to have the work wasted by a bungling NCO, and his word doubted by a Philpot, and that I may call the beginning of the second stage. End of chapter 8 Recording by Roger Moline